Good morning. It's a pleasure to uh, contribute to the United Nations Audiovisual Library in this lecture on interpreting the International Criminal Court Statute. I'm Leila Sadat. I'm a professor of international criminal law at Washington University in St. Louis. I also am a special advisor to the International Criminal Court Prosecutor on Crimes Against Humanity. I've been working on ICC-related issues since 1994 both as a scholar, as an academic, as a, a member of the International Law Association and chair of the ICC committee. I was at the Rome Conference and the Kampala Conference, and I'm a huge supporter uh, and fan of the court, as well as an academic that really spends a lot of my time studying the court. So today's lecture is about um, interpreting the statute. And the biggest issue that I've seen as an observer of the court since the entry into force of the statute in 2002 is that the various judges that come to sit on the bench have different methodologies, they come from different legal traditions, they have different backgrounds, and there's not a consistent and uniform interpretive methodology that is being used to interpret the statute. Um, you don't need a methodology for methodology's sake, right? That's not to have something theoretically pure just to say that you have it. The problem is if you don't have a consistent interpretive method for looking at open-ended questions that come up in the statute, you lose predictability because it becomes unpredictable what a particular trial chamber, pretrial chamber, or even appellate chamber will do. Uh, you lose consistency because the judges are approaching the problem from very different angles and not consistent in their sort of methodological approach. And unfortunately, that also means that the judgments may lose some legitimacy because if they're unpredictable and inconsistent and it's difficult to understand what the law is in a case or what the law is likely to be coming from an appeals chamber or trial chamber, uh, the court's legitimacy can suffer. And that's particularly uh, important because this court, even though it has narrow jurisdiction in some senses, if the Security Council refers a situation to the court, the court's jurisdiction is essentially unbounded by geography, right? And although it has only prospective application, even non-state party nationals and um, states uh, that haven't ratified the ICC statute can come within the court's jurisdiction. And so it's really important that this court, because it does have a universal scope, has very consistent, predictable, and legitimate um, judgments. So what I'd like to talk about essentially comes from uh, an article that I wrote called Seven Canons of ICC Interpretation, uh, interpreting the ICC statute that was published in the Leiden Journal of International Law. And what I identify with my co-author, Jared Jolly, uh, an Australian uh, lawyer, is that each judge, in addition to coming from particular legal traditions, tends to view the statute of the court a little bit like the famous Rorschach blot, which is the psychological test where you're shown a picture, and depending on sort of what inner drama you might have in your life, you might interpret what the picture is. Is it a bird? Is it a person? Is it a heart? Um, and so each judge looks at a specific provision of the statute, and depending on their tradition and their background and their legal culture, they see something different. And so bringing 
bringing together those disparate views so that you can have a, 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 a consistent interpretive methodology, I think, is, has proven to be a very difficult issue for the court. We now have 18 years of jurisprudence, uh, approximately, and we're seeing a lot of disparate uh, views. And this has really surfaced a lot. It surfaced in the um, interpretation of the policy element in Crimes Against Humanity. It's, inter it's surfaced in the war crimes provisions of the statute. It's really surfaced a lot in the modes of liability jurisprudence. And I think that's one of the most difficult areas of interpretive difficulty right now for the court. Article 25 um, was put together by the negotiators in 1998 as sort of an amalgam of different modes of liability, aiding and abetting, uh, accomplice liability, ordering, instigating, commission, uh, and Article 28 on command responsibility or superior responsibility of a superior was also put together during the negotiations as a way to try to encompass what had been what had been the law until then, which we have from Nuremberg forward, um, and not with any specific legal system in mind. Right? It's supposed to be international criminal law. And what happened uh, as these provisions began to be interpreted by the judges in the very early jurisprudence, in the pretrial chambers, in Lubanga and other cases, is all of a sudden we start seeing national law coming in. So Article 25 was in a way um, co-opted by this control of the crime theory of Klaus Roxine, a famous German scholar, which all of a sudden appeared in pretrial chamber decisions as a way of thinking about the meaning of Article 25. And Article 28 has been less a subject of, of national law creeping in, but just more a source of confusion, if, if I could uh, put it um, not unkindly, but that's what sort of emerges from the case law, is a lot of differences of views, shall we say, from various judges. So the art of interpretation of the international judge um, is to have appropriate levels of judicial creativity where there are actual gaps in the statute, but to avoid the, uh, the label of judicial activism, that is not to go beyond what the drafters intended or go beyond what the statute encompasses, um, and also to avoid inappropriate reference to national law. And that unfortunately has been a problem at the ICC where some judges will bring common law tradition in and, and refer to common law cases as if they were relevant directly to international criminal law. And others, as I said, have brought in civil law cases like the Klaus Roxine theory or others. So um, my, my goal today right, is to talk about, well, what tools do we have? What should be our interpretive methodology when thinking about the Rome Statute? And um, uh, as I said at the outset, I have sort of these seven canons of interpretation that I think really could guide the courts, judges, uh, in thinking about an unanswered question, especially as relates to the criminal code that's embedded in the statute, right? So the Rome Statute uh, takes the form of an international treaty. It's rather like the European Union uh, treaties. It takes the form of a treaty. It performs the status of a constitution in many ways. It's the constitution of this international organization with all sorts of provisions that have to be interpretive teleologically and purposively in order to make it an effective international institution. But it also has a criminal code that's actually embedded in it, which is like a legislative um, part of the Rome Statute. And that criminal code has specific 
canons of interpretation because the legality principle and the idea that we always have to be very conscious of the fact that the human rights of an individual are at stake in any criminal process and so those human rights have to be respected under the principle of legality. Okay, so what tools do we have? Well, we have the ICC statute itself. The drafters in 1998 um, recognized that they were creating a very complex international institution and so they actually put a provision into the statute. It's in Article 21. And Article 21 tells the judges what the applicable law is. And it says the court shall apply, meaning that also the prosecutor and other um, uh, personnel in the court have to be cognizant of this, not just the judges. And as you can imagine, it's similar to, but a little different from Article 38 of the International Court of Justice statute, which sets out the law for that court, the ICC um, provision on applicable law has specific provisions relevant to the job of, a of an international criminal court. So Article 21.1 says that the court shall apply in the first place, so there's a hierarchy, the statute, the elements of crimes, and the rules and procedure of evidence. So the first thing judges need to do is look at the statute and the ancillary documents. And Article 9, which talks about the elements of crimes, tells us that these are subsidiary. So the statute, obviously, is our first place that we look, elements, and then rules. Then Article 21b tells us in the second place, so telling us that this is a hierarchy, if there's a gap where appropriate, applicable treaties and the principles and rules of international law, including the established principles of the international law of armed conflict. So we have in the second place, secondary to the statute, treaties and customary international law. It doesn't say customary international law, but all observers of the process and scholars like Bill Shabas and others writing after this have said this is really what they're talking about. In particular, international humanitarian law, the international law of armed conflict. So that's Article 21.1b, right? It gives us a second source. And then 21.1c tells us failing that. So by the words failing that, meaning if you don't get your answer from the text and the elements and the rules, and you can't find a treaty <coughs> or customary international law to help you. Failing that, quote, general principles of law derived by the court from national laws of legal systems of the world, including as appropriate the national laws of states that would normally exercise jurisdiction of the crime, provided that those principles are not inconsistent with the statute and with international law, and internationally recognized norms and standards. And so what this tells you, if you think of the ICJ statute, this is a 38.1c, general principles of law, where you're deriving a gap-filling rule because you can't figure out the rule either from the statute, treaties, or custom. Um, but you're not supposed to be picking a particular national law. You would look only to national law as general evidence of a rule. Um, the ICTY had this as well. They used general principles of law. Maybe the most famous case in which they did so was Erdemovich, which was a very early decision at the Yugoslavia Tribunal, where they surveyed um, tens of jurisdictions, right? They surveyed lots and lots and lots of jurisdiction to answer the difficult question, which wasn't in their statute, which is in the ICC statute, of whether duress 
was a defense to crimes against humanity. And they couldn't figure it out because it wasn't actually in the ICTY statute. And so the judges of the appeals chamber at the ICTY had a conversation involving both recourse to customary international law and general principles to try to figure out how do national legal systems do that? And can we derive from that how the International Criminal Tribunal should do that? And that's a lovely example, actually, of sort of the proper recourse to general principles when all else fails, which is what is actually embedded in the ICC statute. Um, the second uh, paragraph of Article 21 tells the court, you can apply principles and rules of law as interpreted in your prior decisions. So there's no rule of stare decisis the way we would have in a common law system, but the court can develop a jurisprudence and in fact at the ICTY and ICTR and even in early decisions of the ICC, they've said it's preferable for reasons of stability, consistency, and legitimacy for, its, for a court to adhere, right, to cleave to its earlier jurisprudence unless there's a compelling reason to depart from it. So you're not relitigating every question over and over again. In fact, you start to develop a stable, predictable, uh, and therefore legitimate jurisprudence over time. And finally, and really importantly, subparagraph 3, which doesn't have an analog at all in the ICJ statute, says the application and interpretation of law pursuant to this article must be consistent with internationally recognized human rights and be without any adverse distinction founded on grounds such as gender, age, race, color, language, religion, etc. And that human rights and adverse, no adverse distinction clause is really important because the notion, again, of this statute is not just about combating impunity, which obviously is a primary objective of the International Criminal Court, but also about protecting victims and protecting the human rights and the uh, fair trial rights of the accused. So very important. And the other provision we have in the ICC statute that is unique to it is found not in Article 21, but in Article 22, which is entitled Nullum Crimen Sina Legis, No Punishment Without Law, which is known as the legality principle in international law. Um, <clears throat> and it says that a person shall not be criminally responsible unless the conduct at the time it takes place constitutes a crime within the jurisdiction of the court, that's subparagraph one, and then subparagraph two is really a direction to the judges and the prosecutor as well. The definition of crime shall be strictly construed and not extended by analogy. In case of ambiguity, the definition shall be interpreted in favor of the person being investigated, prosecuted, or convicted. Right, so that is a, that's sort of an overarching principle that says when you're talking about definitions, like was this a murder, was this an act of torture, was this an act of sexual violence covered uh, either under Article 8 or Article 7, you can't create new crimes by analogy. Now, again, there's still going to be ambiguities because there's some things that are not really a new crime by analogy or an extension, but appear to fit within the rubric, and that's where the art of interpretation, again, for the international judge comes in. And fortunately, we have outside, so this is inside the statute, so we have an interpretive framework actually built in. And then outside of the Rome Statute, fortunately, we have lots of help as well. We have the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, which the, um, the Appeals Chamber of the ICC has said we should use. Now, it has provisions that maybe are less appropriate for criminal law interpretation, but nonetheless, we have Articles 31 and 32, the core interpretive um, 
provisions of the Vienna Convention that, like the ICC statute, sort of say, go to the text first, right? And interpret your text in light of the context and the object and purpose in good faith. So those principles of the Vienna Convention. And then as a secondary source, right, you may need to go to the travaux and other subsidiary sources if you really can't figure out the meaning, if it's ambiguous or ridiculous or obscure. So we have international treaties and jurisprudence about those treaties, especially from the International Court of Justice and from the work of the ad hoc international criminal tribunals, including Yugoslavia, Rwanda, Special Court for Sierra Leone, the Cambodia, the Extraordinary Chambers. So we have lots of other international courts and tribunals, particularly specialized international criminal courts, that have had similar interpretive problems and can be a really um, a source of law outside the ICC statute for the judges inside the ICC statute and really anybody looking at the statute to look at and trying to figure out how to interpret uh, specific problems. Um, just, just to give you a, a couple of examples and then I'll turn then to sort of what I think the sort of seven canons, thinking about what we have inside the statute and what we have outside the statute, we've really seen difficulties, as I said, with modes of liability where we have had uh, judges arguing that there's a hierarchy built into Article 25.3, even though there is no in the first place and the second place failing that language. We've also had um, language that's been extremely difficult. So we have a theory of direct co-perpetration and indirect co-perpetration with uh, about seven elements that have to be proven, including the existence of a common plan for joint commission uh, and commission through another person. None of that language is actually inside the text of Article 25.3. So there's been a huge amount of law review literature generated. There have been uh, dissents at the court about both from a common law judge, Judge Fulford, and a judge from the civil law tradition, Judge Van and Beingert. Uh, neither are at the court now, so we have sort of a clean slate going forward. Um, but really, there's been a lot of controversy about the meaning of this. Likewise, in the Bemba decision that just came out this past summer on June 8th of 2018, we had an argument amongst the five members of the appeals chambers about the meaning of Article 28 on the question of command responsibility. None of them really use the interpretive methods either inside or outside. And so one of the reasons I think having sort of these seven canons or having, here's my go-to, here's my checklist, right? I go to the statute, then I go to the treaties, then I go to custom, then I, is that you're likely to get a more consistent um, interpretation. And with respect to command responsibility right now, we had an argument amongst the judges at the appeals chamber in the Bemba decision about whether causation was a necessary requirement, whether the commander's arguable dereliction of duty had to have caused the troops to commit the crimes. Two judges say yes, two judges say no. One judge, I can't really tell what they said, but they sort of seem to agree with both camps. and. So we actually don't know the answer to the question. And none of the five members of the appeals chamber really in the four separate opinions used, again, an interpretive methodology that would give us confidence that, look, they got the right answer. And so um, I think it's particularly important. We're celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Rome Statute this year. Um, the, the creation of the court was an enormous accomplishment, and it's really the work of the judiciary now that's going to make the most lasting impact um, because these cases can be read, studied, 
used to advise militaries in the case of command responsibility all over the world. And so getting this right, I think, in the future is something very important for, for the court to do. So let me talk very quickly, um, and then I'll end the lecture, just talk about my seven canons and, and leave a, a few concluding remarks. So the first one is fidelity to the text reliance upon plain meaning, including ordinary principles of treaty interpretation, such as good faith and consideration of context. So you read the text. Sometimes you read it in all six authentic languages, right, of the court. And we've seen that in the Kenya uh, descent of Judge Cowell. He, he looks at other language versions. Um, we look for plain meaning. Sometimes the meaning isn't very clear. Um, and then we look to ordinary principles of treaty interpretation, good faith, purpose, um, looking at the statute in context, right? Um, and if that, as 21.1 says, doesn't work, um, then you have to start being a little bit more expansive. And so in my Canon 2, you say, and this really is read with Canon 1, and just as, I should add a note here, these are not hierarchical. So the um, even the provisions of the ICJ statute, Article 38.1a, b, and c, they are to be used as they would naturally occur to the mind of the international judge, right? Which is treaties and custom are equivalent. They're both in Article 21.1b of the ICC statute. So when I say you might look at the treaty first, yes, you would look at the treaty first because naturally you would look for specific language because customary international law can be difficult to ascertain. But customary international law is an equal source and has to be equally taken into consideration. Canon 2, provisions should be construed to be faithful to the object and purpose of the Rome statute, consistent with the legality principle embodied in Article 22.2. And this is an important tweak to the Vienna Convention rules because the legality principle tells you that you don't want to get too, you know, wax too lyrical about object and purpose interpretation because you can, I think it was Judge Van and Weingart who said this can be sort of a form of liberal overreach when you're interpreting a criminal code Object and purpose teleological style interpretation is less appropriate than if you're interpreting other constitutional provisions of the Rome Statute. So Canon 2, look at object and purpose as you're looking at text, also keep in mind the legality principle. Canon 3, if the meaning, and this comes right from the Vienna Convention, if the meaning is ambiguous, obscure, or leads to a result that's manifestly absurd or original, look at the travaux préparatoires. So in the understanding of Article 25 on modes of liability or Article 28 on liability of a superior, look at the travo. What did they say when negotiating the statute? Um, canon 4, if you still have gaps, right, which you might, um, the court should look to its Article 21.1b sources, including the jurisprudence of the ad hoc international criminal tribunals, and failing that, look to Article 21.1c sources, that is general principles of law. And that again, that's a command of the statute. If you can't figure it out from the text, go to treaties and customary international law and failing that to general principles. Um, one note about the ad hoc international criminal tribunals. The judges of the ICC have been inconsistent in 
deciding whether or not to look at ICTY or ICTR, or special court jurisprudence. Sometimes you'll see them refer to case law to interpret a particular provision, and sometimes you'll read in the case, oh, we can't do that because their statute is different than our statute. That would be inappropriate. As I'll <coughs> conclude with, I actually think that the uh, drafters and negotiators of the Rome Statute did not intend to fragment international criminal law in creating the ICC. And so I think the judges of the ICC should sort of as a default mechanism, the default should be go to the ICTY and ICTR and see what they said. Now, if there's a specific command in the ICC statute that says, oh, our statute is different, we have a different definition of this crime, obviously they have to apply that. But the default should really be to include within the ICC jurisprudence, the jurisprudence of the ad hoc international criminal tribunals, because I think the clear intent was for the ICC as the world's first permanent, hopefully the long-lasting permanent court uh, of international criminal jurisdiction is it's the successor to these ad hoc international criminal tribunals. And recall that when those tribunals were created, the Security Council in the resolution creating them in the report of the Secretary General commanded those tribunals to apply customary international law. So those are customary international law courts. And when the ICC judges, as they sometimes do, say, oh no, we're not going to look at that because we have a different statute, I think that's just wrong because it's clear that customary international law is the system in which the ICC is embedded. I love to quote Judge uh, Rosalind Higgins, international law is not just a series of texts or rules, it's a legal system. And so the ICC exists as part of the international legal system embedded itself in customary international law, including the Lex Specialis of international criminal law as developed by the ad hocs. Its statute has to come first, obviously, but as a matter of course, the judges should be quick to embrace, not to reject, the jurisprudence of the ad hoc tribunals unless they see that, in fact, they've been commanded to do something different by their statute. Um, Canon 5, all provisions should be construed with the objective of protecting the rights of the accused and ensuring the application of the statute is consistent with uh, internationally recognized human rights, again required by Article 21.3 of the statute and Article 22.2 of the statute. And important because the, the point of this court, right, of course it's to combat impunity, but it's also to show that you can try these cases in a way that's protective of human rights and promotes uh, fair trial and due process for the accused because it's setting an example then for national legal systems and other international or ad hoc or hybrid courts that might be created in the future. Um, Canon 6, and this is where um, I depart a little bit from my toolbox, but I think it makes sense. Uh, the interpretation should enhance judicial efficiency and the effectiveness of the ICC system without compromising the values of human rights and uh, fidelity to the legality principle. Why do I say that? Some of the jurisprudence has, um, to be honest, complicated the ICC process to the point that it's almost not functional. So if you think about the Bemba case, essentially in 2018, the Bemba appeals uh, chamber 
reversed a, a pretrial chamber decision from 2009 about what had to be in the document containing the charges and the confirmation decision. Because in 2018, they decided that even though the case had gone to trial, um, on, uh, and both the pretrial chamber and the trial chamber had decided the case was properly tried and the charges uh, uh, against the accused had been properly incorporated into and he received notice of them. In 2018, the appeals chamber suddenly changed the law and said, oh, no, 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 no. Everything has to be decided at the DCC stage, at that pretrial chamber stage. Now, whether that's correct or not is sort of beside the point. I, I personally don't think it is correct. I don't think that's the way the ICC trial process was designed. Confirmation takes three to five days. There are no live witnesses. It's very fast. You couldn't possibly have a mini trial. The whole point is just to say, do we have crimes within the jurisdiction of the court? And have we passed the evidentiary threshold? But even assuming the appeals chamber was right, doing it retroactively through the entire process into disarray. And we have two cases now in trial, Anglin and Nidagonda, well, and Gabagbo. And so there are cases in trial that now we just really don't know what the law is. And so both the prosecution, the defense, the judges are sitting there saying, oh my goodness. So one of the things I think Canon 6, when judges, especially at the appellate level, are thinking, like, am I consistent? With, my, with earlier rulings? Am I enhancing the efficiency of this process? And to the extent that sometimes changes have to be made, um, one technique they could use is to do it prospectively, which is used by many international courts and national courts. And my final canon, uh, which I think is critically important, is the interpretation of a particular provision should enhance the expressive and normative function of international criminal law by rendering it transparent, comprehensible, and reducing opportunities for fragmentation. So what do I mean by that? Maybe it's the, the common lawyer in me speaking. These judges uh, are writing opinions that are translated into six languages and presumably read in 193 countries because those 193 jurisdictions are all within the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court in the event of a Security Council uh, referral. So two cases are, are there now because of the Security Council, Libya and Sudan, even though those states haven't ratified the statute. And so it's really important that the court be speaking not just to the technical issues. Again, this is, this is perhaps the common lawyer in me, so forgive me, but it's speaking to its public. You want these cases to have an expressive function. You want people to know what the law is. Really, as a military commander, what can I do? What can I not do? What's a crime against humanity? What kind of organizations come within the scope of Article 7? What kind of elements make up a policy? What constitutes an attack against a civilian population? These aren't common sense ideas, right? They're highly technical, but I think they can be written and rendered in such a way that the law becomes accessible. And I say this because in the modes of liability area, where one would think X is uh, if, if you read Article 25, it says in 25.3a, it says, in accordance with this statute, a person shall be criminally responsible and liable for a punishment if that person, quote, commits such a crime, whether as an individual jointly with another or through another person, regardless of whether that other person is criminally responsible. That's easy to understand. They committed the crime jointly. It doesn't say anything about indirect co-perpetration. It doesn't even use the word co-perpetration, which is a technical term. It doesn't say there needed to be a plan between the person 
committing the crime. It just say commits a crime, very simple. And so when you start superimposing highly complex ideas over this actual beautiful simplicity of the ICC statute, then all of a sudden you render it extraordinarily difficult to understand. And uh, one British newspaper quipped that when we put the mode of liability uh, for an individual indicted by the ICC into our press releases, we put it in quotes because nobody can understand it except a sort of global technical elite. So Muammar Gaddafi was originally uh, accused of being, quote, an indirect co-perpetrator of crimes that he was responsible for having, you know, ordered the commission of or, or been committing. So I think reducing the opportunity for complexity is something that the law should always strive for, actually. Most of the great judges of the world will try to write beautifully and elegantly in ways that make it accessible. And it's also because this is being translated into so many different languages and so many different legal systems, really important that it be clear. And finally, as I said, I think the ICC should see itself as reducing fragmentation in international criminal law uh, as opposed to promoting it. I think the Rome Statute builds upon the work that had come since the Nuremberg Tribunal on, hopefully improving it with a pretrial process and an appeals process and more human rights protections for the defendants, etc. Acknowledgement of victims, addition of new crimes, but at the same time creating a system um, that serves the public for which it was created. And that that is something um, I think that all members of the court, including the prosecutor, all have to be mindful of is, and essentially they're, they're public servants. They are serving the public. They're part of an international criminal justice system that is designed to help the victims of international crime, to uh, end impunity for the commission of international crimes, and hopefully build a system for the future that can help deter, um, promote peace, and promote justice and stability going forward. So I hope this was helpful. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and uh, thank you.